the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to a new edition of Vatican Insider this first weekend of February 2022. My special guest this week in the interview segment is Deacon Brad Easterbrooks, studying at the North American College in Rome, who is looking at a special way to live his future priesthood, the life of a military chaplain. Brad, from San Diego, has a wonderful story to tell you about his vocation, but you have to hear about his remarkable pre-seminary years, working at a consulting firm and on political campaigns, law school, then the Navy, and work for JAG, and then... Well, to hear that story, tune in after the news segment. Now, this week's Vatican News Highlights. Sunday, January 30th. After reciting the Noon Angelus, Pope Francis expressed his closeness to those who suffer from Hansen's disease, and he prayed they will not lack spiritual support and health care. Since 1954, January 30th marks World Leprosy Day, a day aimed at increasing public awareness of this disease, also known as Hansen's disease. Francis said it's necessary to work together for the full integration of these people, overcoming any discrimination associated with a disease that unfortunately still affects so many, especially in the most disadvantaged social contexts. Also Sunday... Shortly after receiving news of Sergio Mattarella's re-election as Italian president, Pope Francis sent him a telegram of congratulations describing his service as essential for the unity of the nation. Monday, January 31st, Pope Francis received members of the Agenzie delle Entrate, Italy's revenue agency, and he urged them to implement gospel values as they work to favor the redistribution of wealth and support public services for society's neediest members. He reflected on the biblical roots of taxation and its purpose in society, and he explored the guiding principles of Italy's revenue agency, legality, impartiality, and transparency. Taxation must favor the redistribution of wealth, safeguarding the dignity of the poor and the least, who always risk being trodden underfoot by the powerful. The taxman, when he or she is just, promotes the common good. Tuesday, February 1st. The Vatican released Pope Francis's February prayer intention for consecrated women. He invites Catholics to pray for religious sisters and consecrated women as they continue in their message with courage. Also Tuesday, as the Vatican's 11 pontifical academies held their 25th public session, Pope Francis sent a message to participants and congratulated three scholars for their work in advancing the study of Christian archaeology. Cardinal Gianfranco Ravazzi, head of the Pontifical Council for Culture, read the Pope's letter, and Cardinal Secretary of State Pietro Parolin honored the three scholars with the Pontifical Academy's prizes on behalf of the Holy Father. Wednesday, February 2nd. At the weekly general audience, Pope Francis reflected on the communion of saints, saying every member of the Church is closely connected to each other in Christ through this communion. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, he said the communion of saints is the Church. This means the Church is the community of saved sinners. 
Francis said the communion of saints means that all Christians are so connected that not even death can separate us, linking us closely to our loved ones who have died. The communion of saints holds together the community of believers on earth and in heaven. During the audience, Pope Francis sent greetings to participants in the Beijing Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games, saying, quote, Sport, with its universal language, can build bridges of friendship and solidarity between people and peoples of every culture and religion. I therefore appreciate that the International Olympic Committee has added the word communitaire, meaning together, to the historic Olympic motto, Sitius Altius Fortius, faster, higher, stronger, so that the Olympic Games may nurture a more fraternal world. Wednesday evening, the Pope presided over Mass on the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. February 2nd also marks the World Day of Prayer for Consecrated Life. He was joined in St. Peter's Basilica by members of Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life. In his homily, Francis posed three questions. What and who moves us? What do our eyes see? And what do we take into our own arms? In off-the-cuff remarks on the second question, what do our eyes see, Francis said it would do people good to visit our elderly religious brothers and sisters, to look at them, to talk, to ask, to hear what they think. I think it will be good medicine. Also Wednesday, Pope Francis sent a message marking the 75th anniversary of Provida Mater Ecclesia, the 1947 Apostolic Constitution that recognized secular institutes as a new form of official consecration in the Catholic Church. Thursday, February 3rd, during his annual encounter with the Inspectorate of Public Security at the Vatican, Pope Francis expressed his appreciation to the Italian police for their service in protecting the dignity and safety of pilgrims and visitors. He said their difficult yet precious service helps many pilgrims welcome the Lord. Welcoming them along with their families, the Pope expressed his esteem and appreciation that during the pandemic they've been able to modulate their work well, combining the health protocols, the rules of public order, and the needs of pilgrims. Friday, February 4th, Pope Francis released a video message for the Second International Day of Human Fraternity, urging all people to walk the difficult path of fraternity to overcome the prejudices and conflicts that divide humanity. This International Day was instituted by the UN General Assembly to commemorate the signing of the document on human fraternity for world peace and living together by Pope Francis and the Grand Imam of Al-Aqsar, Ahmed Al-Tayeb, in Abu Dhabi on February 4, 2019. Well, those are the week's top news stories, but now stay tuned to my conversation with Deacon Brad Esther Brooks on his vocation to the priesthood and specifically his call to be a military chaplain. No time this week for a Q&A. EWTN has just increased my faith so much. I am a cradle Catholic, and I thought I knew my faith very well. But um, when uh, Mother Angelica passed away, and it was so much in the news, I learned all about EWTN and started listening all the time. And my eyes have been opened to my faith so much. EWTN, helping people grow in their love and understanding of God. 
saints are the heroes of the Catholic faith. They serve as examples for all Catholics, showing us how to lead a more satisfying, more spiritual life in communion with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. View our comprehensive documentation of saints who serve as theologians and doctors of the church. It's easy. Visit EWTN.com and click Catholicism. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Well, I want to welcome my guest to a very exciting and very different guest this weekend on Vatican Insider. I'm talking to a young seminarian from San Diego, Brad Easterbrooks, and he's actually not a seminarian. He was ordained a deacon, so that is the last step prior to his ordination as a priest and just a few months away. I have been connected, as most of my listeners know, with uh, the North American College, our seminary in Rome, for at least 30 of my 40 years in Rome, and try to get to meet and know a lot of the seminarians. And I was particularly struck, it was actually Brad and I, I don't remember the year, Brad, that we met with your family visiting Rome. It would have been at least a couple of years ago, because it was before COVID. Pre-COVID, right, Mm -hmm. exactly. So welcome, Brad, to Vatican Insider. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Joan. It's great to be here. The story of a vocation is always a wonderful story, as I've discovered over the years. And having shared stories uh, over meals with a lot of you at the college or, or in my home. And your story is beautiful, but it's remarkable in so many ways. Even though we've known each other for a while, I did not know some of your background. I did not know that uh, for a time you worked at a consulting firm on political campaigns. Then you went to law school. Then the Navy came along. You worked for JAG. And then the path straightened out, and, and of course you were on the road to, to the priesthood. But let's look at that background. I think it's so it's probably going to be hugely important even in your life as a priest. I think so. I think, you know, one of the things that I've reflected on over the years is that God doesn't allow things to happen or he he doesn't do things in your life without a a purpose or a plan. And so he he called me to the priesthood, but he allowed me to um, live some years, uh, you know, doing what I thought I wanted to be doing. And and all of those experiences certainly shaped and formed me uh, and prepared me with... uh, additional tools and resources that that uh, have been a part of my formation now in seminary in preparation for priesthood. Well, certainly working for a, a consulting firm, you had to have certain qualities. How did you get involved in political campaigns? Because I know that came about when you were with the firm. Well, that's right. It was, it was, there was actually some crossover there. In, in fact, um, the consulting firm uh, it had both political and corporate clients. And so we, we had ah. Fortune 500 companies as our clients and then also political campaigns. And it was because many of the, the partners had um, come up in a crisis communications world. And so we were doing crisis communications consulting and some marketing consulting uh, for major firms and then also for our political clients. Now, one of those political clients uh, happened to be the, the John McCain presidential campaign. And so I had always, you know, I had been a political science major in college, and and I had always been interested. In fact, during college, I had been a White House intern. I had been an intern with the governor's office in Massachusetts, which was then Governor Mitt Romney. Um, So that was a a little bit ago. Um, And then I I followed that interest uh, into this this business political consulting world, which uh, ended up placing me onto the McCain uh, presidential campaign. So I, I worked for the McCain presidential campaign, and I was actually traveling around 
uh, with the candidates. And I, you know, I had always planned to go to law school, and I just didn't know when. And my career took right. off. It, it, essentially, I got out of college, and and I entered a a a career that was supposed to be temporary anyway. I was always planning it for it to be a temporary career uh, before law school, but it took off. And so at some point I had to decide and, you know, we didn't, uh, the election was not um, won for John McCain. We didn't win the election. So I went back to the, the firm and I did some more work uh, for some business clients. And then I decided I'd enter law school. So I entered law school in, in 2009. I knew during law school that I was very interested in the Judge Advocate General's Corps, uh, the, or known as JAG. It's, it's basically the, the law firm for a military branch. So each branch of service has its own JAG Corps, and then the Navy itself has a JAG Corps that, that serves um, the Navy, and then um, we have a partnership with the, the Marine JAGs as well because it's the same service. Well, I'm guessing a few of our listeners are going to remember the TV series JAG, and I don't remember what years it it aired. I lived in Rome so long, I don't have a, a memory of a, of a lot of those things. So people, I think when they hear JAG, they even know what it means, you know. And, and yes, and I get asked about it all the time, about I'm how sure. accurate it is. And there are aspects of it that are accurate and aspects that are inaccurate. I think uh, in, in one of the scenes, um, the, the protagonist of the, of the show actually lands up uh, a jet on an aircraft carrier. I have not landed a jet on an aircraft carrier, but I have been on an aircraft carrier out to sea. So, so, so there's some aspects that are similar, and some some that are, that are actually not uh, not accurate. But, but yes, um, JAG is is basically the law firm for the Navy, and it's uh, it includes lawyers who advise naval leaders on what their legal obligations are and what their legal options are. And then also lawyers who litigate in cases. As with any large group of people, there are going to be crimes committed. And then when those crimes are committed, the Navy actually will have jurisdiction over those people um, so that they are the ones, um, that the Navy's going to be the ones prosecuting those people or defend, you know, or there are attorneys who are defending them. And so I've actually served both on the prosecution side and the defense side. So I so had... What, just a question. Mm-hmm. Would a military person then involved in you know, some uh, some ill-doing, would they, the military would supersede over a civil court? Is that the... They'd have uh, the right of first jurisdiction. And so, um, and what you mean by civil court is would be a, um, a civilian court, for, in, for instance, the state of California. Oh, yeah, or, exactly. Right. E- exactly. And and so the, the military would have the, the first right of jurisdiction over, okay. uh, over a sailor. And now we don't always assert that, or the Navy doesn't always assert that. Um, however, it's it's very common, especially because if a crime is committed on a ship, who has jurisdiction? Or if a crime oh, is sure. committed on a on a base overseas, who has jurisdiction? And so, because of the military member's uh, status as a as a member of of the military, the the federal government through the military asserts a jurisdiction over their conduct. And so they uh, they will be if they if someone commits an offense, commits a crime they'll be uh, at least considered for prosecution in the military system first. Thank you for allowing me to interrupt mm-hmm. your tale of your, of your time at, at JAG. And yes. then you traveled? You were overseas? Yes, yeah, so with- I, I, was, I was stationed first in San Diego for a couple of years, and, and I did a whole gamut of, of different um, jobs, uh, legal jobs. Um, I was advising commanding officers on, on legal obligations. I had an estate planning office uh, for a few months. I, I did all sorts of things, and I, I did a little bit of prosecutorial work 
And then I was stationed in Yokosuka, Japan, which is uh, about an hour and a half south of Tokyo in Japan. And it's the Navy's largest naval installation in the country of Japan. And I was stationed there as a defense attorney for about two and a half years. And so while there, I had clients who had uh, been prosecuted or they were being prosecuted in the military. And I was their, uh, I was their attorney while they were being prosecuted. Was that kind of where the seed for your vocation was planted? It definitely happened in Japan. I, you know, I had, uh, I had entered uh, the church again. You know, I was born a Catholic, so I was I was baptized as as a child, and then I was sent to Catholic school. But I had not really practiced the faith, uh, at least not the Catholic faith, uh, after after about fifth grade or sixth grade, and that that was because of a number of factors. But we started attending. A Protestant church, and and so I was going to a Protestant youth group, uh, and I got a lot out of that. I, you know, I I definitely would have considered myself a a Christian during high school, but not a Catholic. And uh, I went to Boston College, which is a Catholic university, sure. but I still was not a practicing Catholic there. And it was not until law school that I had uh, reconsidered my Catholic faith. And so, as a Catholic today, who knows how the church works? I was always a Catholic. Um, even though I didn't consider myself one, because I'd been baptized a Catholic. Sure. But w- knowing that in my mid-20s caused me to reflect, you know, what what is it about Catholicism? You know, Catholicism makes these great claims about having the fullness of the truth and having the papacy and having the Eucharist, but is it true? And and as an attorney, or as a, a, starting as a law student, um, thinking through these questions exactly. with a legal mind focused me. And, and I started to look into it, and I had all of these conversations with, with friends, you know, roommates who had been lapsed Catholics themselves or were, and still were, and, and we started to have these conversations that actually led many of us into the faith, in different paths wow. in different ways, but all at the same time. And for me, uh, what I realized was the church has always taught from the beginning, from the first of the church fathers, who, whose writings we still have, dating back to the first century, the church has always taught and always believed that the Eucharist is the real presence of Jesus Christ. That when the church celebrates the Eucharist, Jesus is truly present. Does, that yeah. The Holy Spirit comes down and consecrates through the priest the bread and the wine and becomes the body and blood of Christ. And if that's the case, is it true? And I came to believe through faith that it has to be true because of how the church is constituted, how the church survived all of these centuries through civilization after civilization, empire after empire, king after king, all of these different... And uh, the occasional heresy. (laughs) And the occasional heresy, and, and constantly being attacked. But there was this continuity of faith from from the first popes, from Peter, and then the first fathers of the church and the saints and their beliefs. And, and you can really immerse yourself in what they, what they believed. There's this continuity of faith from St. Cecilia to St. Mother Teresa. Yeah. There's not, they would know each other. And that's a miracle in and of itself. It's almost its own basis for credibility. So I became convinced of that in law school. And so I re-entered the church. I, you know, I went to my first confession in something like 17 years. And I was then confirmed uh, at the end of law school. And so when I entered the military, 
I entered the military you know, fully excited, enthused, fully alive in my faith and, and growing in my faith. And so the seed certainly was planted as soon as I, I got in, you know, and I had already commissioned as a naval officer when this, this all happened. And so I was always going into the, the Navy JAG Corps, but, you know, back in the back of my mind, in the back of my prayer, I was thinking, does God want me to be a priest? And still, you know, I, I had that residual uh, personal desire not to be because I had always planned to get married and have kids. And, you know, I was now mid to mid to late 20s and, and thinking it's, it's now time to settle down. God has enabled me to become a practicing Catholic again so I can date as a Catholic. And I was, you know, excited about that. And so I did date as a Catholic. So I, I began dating uh, in, in the military as a, as a Catholic with Catholic girlfriends thinking, you know, this is, this is for me and, and I'll get to have a, sure. a wonderful Catholic family. But the problem with all that is, is that was my plan. That wasn't necessarily God's plan. Listening to the Lord. <laughs> That's right. And so he let me work through that. You know, God doesn't, we're not robots to God. He doesn't force us to do anything. He inspires us. He gives us the grace. He gives us the love. He gives us everything from his own life. He has self-communicated to us through his son, right. his very self. But he doesn't force it. He lets us But he choose. also gave us free will. That's exactly. right. That's right. And so he let me work through it myself. So uh, I had um, come out of a, a long-term relationship uh, right before moving to Japan. And I thought, you know what, God? I've been doing it my way. Even, even you know, as a, as a believing daily mass Catholic at this point, right? I've been doing it my way. I'm going to let you show me if this is for me. So I moved to Japan. Um, and, and that gave me... Uh, the opportunity, you know, just to to take my pulse. And so while in Japan, I started to seriously pray about the possibility of priesthood. I would say I didn't desire it. I thought if I op- I could consider it, and if it, I didn't discern it, then I could close that door in my life and then move on and be happy. And uh, what I did was I opened the door, and so God came in, you know. And and you, you um, that scripture comes to mind. Lo, I stand at the door and knock. And so Christ was at the door and he was knocking and I opened it. And so then he came in and he took it from there. And I totally understand that. I had a very critical moment in my life. I was a little older than you would have been at the time. And I remember after I got over this huge drama with the aid of faith, family, and friends, I have to say, I remember one day, and it was in Southern California, as a matter of fact, I have a lot of family there. My parents retired near San Diego. Anyway, um, I remember just looking up to heaven. For some reason, we think that God is only up there. We never think he's seated right next to us, you know, as we work or at the dinner table or whatever. I just remember looking up and saying, Lord, my life is all in your hands. And you know, Brad, I could almost hear him laughing. Gave my life to God and wow, did he change it. And he did for you. He did in a big way. And at multiple stages. You know, conversion is not just one and done. It's it's not something where you, you have one experience of conversion and then you proceed forward and life's gonna be, you know, in all in one trajectory. It there are there are conversions and then there are deeper conversions and, and conversions in different ways. In you know, w- one was sure. the conversion to the faith and then 
in, in this case, this was the conversion to the vocation and the sure. process that God led me through uh, to make that conversion, which involved giving up one of my personal desires. You know, a desire that's a good desire, because this is not about choosing between one thing that's good and one thing that's bad. It was a, it was a desire about placing aside a something I really wanted that was good, that God has actually... Marriage and a family. Yeah. ...called others to, that that's their vocation. Uh, but in this case, God was calling me to this other vocation and giving me the freedom to consider it and say, yes, you know, I have a, a good mentor who has constantly, you know, reminded me, and it's, it's something that's, um, that's helped me along this path. Uh, she's a religious sister, and she, she has told me, you know, God can call you to the priesthood, but he wants you to decide whether or not you want to say yes. Yes, exactly. And, and so your yes is not obligated by his call. He'll still love you if you choose to get married. Wow. But if you choose to say yes, you're doing so freely. It's your desire, too. And so that process of conversion to this vocational calling went from my desire being for marriage to now my desires for priesthood, and so my yes is totally free. Well, you know, I think both you and I in very different ways because I wanted the same thing and assumed that I would have what my mom and dad and 18 aunts and uncles had, that is to say a good marriage and family, and that I could impact lives that way. And God had other plans. I know you will impact many, many family lives. In, in you know, you're going to be a priest in a few months. We'll talk about that. But you will impact many more lives than maybe you even would have um, as the father of a family. You would have obviously impacted, you know, your wife and children and so forth. And I don't have the husband or children, but I do know, because they've told me, you know, how many lives I've impacted. So you're just months away from being ordained a priest, right? June? That's right. June 24th in San Diego. The Feast of St. John. But not this year, actually, because because it's following oh, it on the Friday yeah. that's uh, the Feast of the Sacred Heart. Oh, of course. So so my, my ordination will be on the Feast of the Sacred Heart. So the Feast of St. John the Baptist is going to be moved this year to, I believe, the day before. And and then my first Mass will be the next day, which will be on the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So, oh. so I'll be ordained on the Feast of the Sacred Heart, and then I'll have the Feast of the Immaculate Heart the next morning. Doubly blessed. How wonderful. Well, I- Italy always celebrates, of course, the Feast of St. John in a big way. And in non-COVID times, there's always big rock concerts at, at St. John Lateran Basilica, etc. That's all the time I have today with Reverend Brad Easterbrooks, a deacon at the North American College in Rome. But come back next week for part two of our conversation when we talk about his future as a military chaplain, a challenging and yet rewarding way to spend one's priesthood in a parish that spans across the world. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.